Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. I'm, um, I'm hyped to hear about... Um today today's cafe bitcoin because it's it's still something that irks me um i don't profess to have you know shit tons of bitcoin but i I always roll with a kind of um ethos that whatever you have now is going to be worth significantly more in in the years to come and um yeah excited about this this cafe bitcoin today yeah there's a lot going on um and i agree with you noodle like i'm i'm kind of the same same mindset just you know thankful to be part of it all there's so much crazy going on in the world today i'm just very thankful for it every day i'm just glad that we all found bitcoin while all this stuff is going on i can only imagine like not having any release valve no no exit strategy no way out and just feeling like what the heck is going on in this world i'm just happy that we all are here and that we found it Hundred percent. I don't know. I, I've talked to a lot of Bitcoiners that feel the same way. It really has uh, given a lot of us so much hope for the future. And prior to that, uh, it was very easy to be pessimistic. Uh, and when Bitcoin, when people say Bitcoin is hope, it is so true. It really changes your complete mindset of the future. It has made me a much happier, much more hopeful, much more positive person. And I'm very thankful for that. It's also made me kind of, uh, kind of, uh, very frugal these days. Not, not to the point I'm a complete tight ass. It's just that you know, um, I suppose my my I used to be quite a, a a consumerist. I'd say I used to buy a load of shit that I never needed, and you know, every single purchase I make nowadays nowadays is you know, could I do with the additional sats, or you know, do I actually need this shit, or, or would I prefer to have the sats? Yeah. Or what's the opportunity cost now? Like, I think about that one a lot where like, you'll see these memes going around where like, you know, one iPhone, whatever back in the day costs like, you know, however many millions of sats or whatever it was, you know, I'm just throwing those numbers around, but you get the idea. And then today it's, you know, how many iPhones could one, you know, one Bitcoin buy, you know? So it's like, that's the reverse where I'm sitting here looking at this thing and I'm going, Hmm, I could buy this magazine right now, for example, when I know that all this stuff's available online, just little, little things like that, where I'm going like, wait a minute, like if I bought that right now, is this going to be like a $12,000 magazine down the road? Yeah. But spare a thought for the, um, for, for the, the, the real kind of the Bitcoiners that were in kind of silk road days that were picking up, you know, little bits of weed for what is now, you know, what would have been $40 worth or something. And is now worth probably the best part of, I don't know, $50,000 or more. 
Hell of a buzz. Hell of a buzz if you can but, get it. But, but I maintain the people that did that, you know, regardless of, of what your views are on, you know, drugs and, and all of that, the people that did that are, are, you know, they were necessary to, to push Bitcoin forward and, and, you know, its first kind of examples of utility. Expensive bag of weed, man. <laughs> Morning, Isabel. How you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Inheritance you know, every... planning is that the topic? Is that was that what's going on today? Is that coming up? Hour two. That's going to be hour two. Yep. Okay, got, we got it. Paul Parent. Paul Tarantino and Matt McClintock are going to be doing that. Cool, cool. That'll be like episode three, I think, of the uh, Inheritance Planning series. It's a topic, so, yeah, well, topic near and dear to my heart. Are you involved with that nowadays? Is that something you're I, doing? I, I became very, well, I have like a deep love. So um, I've, I spent a lot of time just like, thinking about how you move big, like how do you like keep control of your Bitcoin and, and kind of move it safely to your loved ones. And like, what are the, you know, that's part of the setup, right? I think that that's something that people don't talk about when they talk about like the ultimate setup. Um, people don't talk about it enough. And yeah, I mean, I'm very, like, I'm a big, like unchained fan girl. And I've spent a lot of time talking to those folks about, you know, like how they facilitate, uh, how they facilitate, you know, movement of Bitcoin from loved ones to, you know, from, from deceased loved ones to loved ones um, in the safest ways possible that don't put Bitcoin at risk um, while the person is still living. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've gotten to do some research, if, if that makes sense. There's also, sorry, Alex, there's also the other thing to consider with um, inheritance and you know, that's the unfortunate kind of, you know, bullshit that, that, you know, regulated companies have to go through, which is KYC. I know a lot of, you know, regulated companies don't want to do it, but have to do it because, you know, they need to remain above board, etc. But, you know, we, we all know companies, Ledger, etc., that have fallen victim to, you know, um, data leaks, etc. Normally through kind of, you know, MailChimp or, or, or other kind of email platforms and whatnot. But, it's just something to consider for inheritance planning, the whole KYC side of things, and and you know. Hey, Noodle, when when you when you have to involve third party trust, KYC is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it, it's just it's more a case of you don't want potential adversaries to get hold of that you know data that that kind of points towards you. And you having Bitcoin, that's the kind of, you know, the million dollar question of how you solve that. But I agree with you, you know, when it comes to this kind of stuff, it, it, it's important to involve a trusted third party. It's just that it, it's KYC in general. You know, I, I, I can't stand it, not because I'm trying to be a, a bad actor or something, but because so many of these third party companies that, that deal with the data, not necessarily the, the actual Bitcoin companies themselves, but the third parties that sometimes deal with these data can be, you know, victims to, you know, adversaries. 
I mean, it's sort of a, with inheritance is sort of an interesting question because you kind of by definition, well, maybe not, but if you want to really have a, um, in my mind, I think like it's like involving a trusted third party who has one key out of a multi-sig. This is, of course, now the unchained strategy, right? Feels like the safest way to do it. We're within the most trustless way possible because that third party institution has some like legal liability to not collude with your with your um, with your person. Whereas if you're doing it on your own, I just think like if you're doing a similar setup like this multi-sig two of three, where you have you know, basically give like one of each key to two people that aren't you. And so like, if you, you know, then you're really, there's gotta be, there has to be some level of trust that there's no collusion of the people who have the two, two keys. Right. And I think like, I don't know. I mean, I think that involving an institution in that kind of feels like ultimately the safest way to do it. Cause two people, two keys is not a lot of keys. So you gotta have like pretty strong, accountability and liability. I don't know if I'm... You're you're making sense, Isabel, that the problem is um, that that there are institutions that don't have such great track records. That's the that's the problem. That's the problem that I have. You know, we we see these institutions that, you know, supposedly were, you know, um, were advertising themselves as uh, as safe places for people to do things and, and it happens all the time. It's not just in Bitcoin. I mean, it happens all the time in, in TradFi and all the time in these, in these trusted happens in government environments. Well, the, the UK government have, you know, been, been guilty of leaving certain laptops and, and stuff on, on the tube in, in the UK and, and having, you know, fuck tons of, of data leaked. So, so yeah, it's just, yeah, I don't know how it's solved unless they just got rid of KYC, which we all know is never going to happen. I see Lisa. Lisa's an unchained person and Chomer. We've got the unchained and the swan folks who I think are ready to dive in on this. I I just wanted to make a point that's kind of obvious, but maybe imp- implicit, which is like in the nature of Bitcoin, it lets you hold the asset trustlessly. You, you don't have to count on anybody else for you to retain ownership of the asset or for you to send it to somebody else. It's entirely self-sovereign. And of course, under that circumstance, if you die, <laughs> the, the tr- and you haven't made some trusted arrangement with somebody else in some way, then the the Bitcoin just stays locked up with you forever because you're not there to trust to use the the, uh, the solution that you have, which is trust in nobody else, to move it. So. By definition, when we bring inheritance planning into Bitcoin, we need to bring some measure of trust in someone, whether it's the beneficiary or some other third party who's going to help or some combination of them. There's a necessity. And whether that involves KYC or not, that's that's yet another option. So there's there's this large space of people probing around for solutions. But we have to surrender if we want to leave our Bitcoin to heirs that we have to surrender the complete trustless nature of it because we have to have some mechanism that our loved ones, our heirs or whoever they are, will be able to find some clue that they can decode in order to then take possession 
of the property we wanted to leave them with. Tomer, that's that's true today, but that's not necessarily true tomorrow. You know, I'm sure that there are I'm sure that there are potential solutions coming. We are so early, and there's there's so much innovation going on that. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm assuming I, that sooner or later someone is going to come up with a with a solution to this particular uh, vexing problem. I, I I don't I think that philosophically it's it's not possible. Someone may uh, reduce the attack surface, the the danger surface, to very very small, but there's no way to entirely remove it. Like let let's just say, for example, I want to leave my Bitcoin to my wife and kids, so. And I want to do it trustlessly. So one thing I can do today is I can give them a post-dated transaction for 10 years from now. And if I'm still alive 10 years from now and I don't want to do it, I just spend it beforehand because I have the private keys. But what if I'm away from my computer or I forget it? Like I'm, I'm, I'm giving some trust in some way. There's no way to eliminate the trust. Like if, it's, if it's all only up to you, then it's only up to you. And if you're not around, it's not, then so, it's, then it's stuck. So that's, Tom, that's the narrow point I'm trying to make. That, that there is, you know, just to kind of, you know, make kind of everyone aware of it. And this is my only kind of reservation with this company because they're a little bit opaque and, you know, on the back of what sort of Isabel and Peter were saying, you know, you want to trust, the company that, that that does this sort of solution, but Nunchuck, um, in fact, BTC Sessions has literally just put out, put out a video about twenty minutes ago um, on Nunchuck's inheritance solution, and that is done in a in a no KYC way. Uh, I haven't you know haven't seen the video yet, but you know that is a solution that exists. I can't vouch for it, but you know, just saying that there is that. It's worth checking out their their Honey Badger um, assisted. Um, custody and, and, and inheritance plan. Yeah, I'm just pointing out no KYC is different from no trust, right? Like it, there's there's no KYC ways to hand your Bitcoin to your heirs. So you just give them, give them the train, give them your hardware wallet and all the details, and no KYC has had to take place. But you trusted. Lisa, please go. You've been very patient while these dudes <laughs> keep talking back and forth. No, I, I see it. your I mean, hand. It's it's a it's really a perplexing question. You know, I mean, from a philosophical point of view, I often think that the best inheritance planning is to not give my daughter any Bitcoin. Right. Like to talk to her about Bitcoin, to encourage her to earn Bitcoin and to save in Bitcoin and to not give her any Bitcoin. I, I personally think that's the best inheritance plan. And then. My Bitcoin can just get donated to, you know, everybody else that's a stakeholder in this network uh, when the time comes. But, I mean, I, I know from a practical point of view, it's very difficult right now, um, even with a solution like Unchained or Casa, it's extremely difficult because you do place both KYC and trust in those institutions. Um, and I've looked for other solutions. So I'm super interested in what uh, Paul and Matt have to say. I've, I've looked for other solutions within big estate planning firms, um, and, and they refuse to touch this right now. So I think that it's an extremely hopeful point in Bitcoin that we're having this conversation. And, and hopefully there's, you know, young people or old people or whoever out there that can come up with, um, you know, that will continue to innovate 
uh, along this line because it's it's obviously a concern that more of us will have every day, especially when the price of Bitcoin goes from twenty two thousand to twenty two million, um, which I firmly believe that it will. It, it's it's something that we're all going to be very concerned about. If it, if it's okay for me to uh, sort of jump in here. Um, First of all, it's like everything everybody said is right on the money. And um, except, except I did want to make a couple of points. I, 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 let me step back. It's right on the money because everybody's individual situation is, is totally unique to themselves. And this is the beauty of trust and estate planning is that you there are no set standards. You're really capable of customizing solutions that work for you and your family. And I think that's a very important thing. There's no right or wrongs. It's what, what's going to work best for you and your particular situation, your jurisdiction, et cetera. Um, I did want to say in regards to KYC, um, I totally agree. I, I would love to be able to do uh, inheritance planning completely anonymously and keep the government out. I am 100% on board with the Bitcoin ethos. That being said, there are some practical benefits to KYC in regards to cost basis here in the United States. If we, if we are all uh, under the assumption that, that when we die, our Bitcoin is going to be worth a lot more than what we're paying for it today, our beneficiaries, if, if properly KYC'd, and if our coins are properly KYC'd, we they can inherit the bitcoin at a at a, the cost that uh of bitcoin when we die so if you bought bitcoin at three thousand dollars in 2016 or 17 you die in in 2080 and your heirs inherit bitcoin at a million dollars a coin their cost base is a million dollars a coin um, so they're not going to ever have to pay cat, uh, tax on any of the coins they sell at, at that price um, or below that price. So, so there are there are pros and cons to all of these things, and I, I just would really say that uh, it really comes down to your unique situation and, and what can be assembled to be best for you. And these things are going to evolve. That that's a hundred percent true. And these are all living documents. So you're gonna you're going to draft documents that are the best you can do today. And you're going to iterate on that as things uh, emerge, as, as new protocols are built. Um, and, and I'll say uh, one last thing. I do think there are some, uh, I, I know some people that are working on some interesting stuff um, that, that are going to help in, in this regard down the future. But but I will say from, from dealing with estate planning attorneys and the dealing <clears throat> with the folks that are involved in, in state creating and drafting new state statutes here in Florida, it has been painful just to get them to accept a digital signature, let alone a completely digital document or a smart, smart contract um, that, that helps with estate planning. So um, I, I think this space is going to evolve for many, many, many years to come. So Paul, I want to push back a little bit. Um, 
uh, and thank you. Um, you. You obviously are going to be far more ex- have far more expertise than me in this in this uh, in this area. Um, but tax laws can change. I'm assuming that's what you're talking about a little bit when you're talking about the evolution and the living document. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing for um, you know individuals or entities to resist change. I mean, Bitcoiners resist change all the time. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, um, though it is inconvenient. I, I know exactly what you're talking about with the uh, with the digital signature. I want to go back to what um, Tomer was, was saying a little earlier um, or discussing about uh, it could be done philosophically, trustlessly, but um, he doesn't think that um, it can be something that is done without trust at all. And I'm curious, so Tomer, are you saying that you don't think there's ever going to be a programmatic kind of solution to this this trustless issue? Or is it just the fact that you have to trust the program that is being utilized that creates that that um, how, small amount. How does the program? How does the program know if you're dead or alive? Well, yeah, no, no, Tomer, Tomer, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not saying that I have the solution. No, I'm but just, I, I, just, I just think if you think about it, Peter, there's no way. Like Bitcoin doesn't. It, know hold on, you say there's alive. no way. You say there's no way, but in the future, that's that's not necessarily true. Somebody may be able to come up with a solution to this. We don't know what kind of biometrics we're going to be um, putting out into the world at some point. I mean, you know, in the next 20 years, it might be that your biometrics are, are something that is, uh, that, that can be um, um, broadcast. It would yeah, involve what's some the, kind of what's the point of even, what's the point of even bringing that up? Paul just literally said that you're going to have to adjust and adapt your plan as new information becomes available. Right. Also, doesn't that totally like go back on the whole privacy? Like, isn't the whole point of this is that we're not trying to, is that we're trying to maintain privacy? Like don't biometric, isn't the whole point to keep ourselves sort of out of the network and have the network run independently without knowing necessarily who's attached to which keys? Yeah. So, but the the biometric piece though, the biometric piece though doesn't, can be, can be anonymous to everybody else and only only can be um, uh, individualized, or excuse me, um, KYC to to the to the individuals that need to know when they need to know. I mean, when you're dead, does it matter that you were KYC'd? I think it depends upon what you're trying to do with your assets moving forward. There are, I think, there are cases where, and and Paul and and Matt will talk about this. Matt leans way more on this side of things than I think. The rest of us do, but he has some valid points in that there are certain types of transactions, even moving forward, that will require some kind of uh, chain of custody, proof of chain of custody to establish identity. And I think that that's, I don't know that there's a solution for that under our current kind of legal systems right now like you'd have to completely have an upheaval and revolution in in the way we do contract law and things like that in order for that not to be the case if i'm not mistaken paul do you have any feedback or thoughts on that i'm i'm in agreement with you um i i mean i do i am hopeful for a future where we can solve these issues um, but i think it's quite a ways off um and i think tomer's 100 correct is that there at least for the foreseeable future, 
this the oracle problem of proof of death, proof of life, however you want to look at it, um, and and you know this chain of custody is is a, is a big problem when you look at it from the perspective of uh, legal inheritance systems and and law. It, it's just, um, I mean, I think there'd be lots of easy ways to solve this within uh, within Bitcoin if we could just eliminate uh, all the the <clears throat> the history of estate planning and the the statutes that have been drafted over decades, right? And and the tax issues, et cetera. But it's, it's not just decades. This kind of stuff goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. Right. Where does this all originate? Like, you know, in 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 the law, if you look back, I mean, this goes all the way back to the kings and queens of feudal Europe. This kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, if we if we could be a hundred percent anonymous and be confident that we were we could send Bitcoin to anywhere we want without being identified with, without anybody knowing we're owning it, et cetera. I mean, then we were talking about a whole nother game, right? We're completely obfuscating um, the IRS and estate planning, but, but that's not the world we live in. And, and so uh, we've got to figure out a way to, to play within the rules, take advantage of the system the best we can uh, and get the Bitcoin to where we want it to be uh, in the most efficient cost effective way. Um, which is okay, what gonna, we're trying to solve. I'm gonna I'm gonna add one thing to that, and then we'll go, Tomer. In that you okay, you say that's the, not the world we live in, but that's the world we're bridging into. And I guess this is yep. the point of the conversation here: is that some right. people are like, "Yeah, fuck all that. Like, I want complete <laughs> exactly. privacy. I don't want any of this nonsense. Like, Bitcoin fixes all this. We shouldn't have to deal with it anymore." The reality is, we do deal with it. And we will continue to deal with it for a while, but I think there's kind of a hybrid situation evolving here. There's there's multiple 100%. pathways. Yeah, very and well uh, said. every person's di- every person's different in what they want, what they're trying to do. Yeah. The, the I, point, the reason I raised my point was not to sound pessimistic about it. It was just to to say in what space we can start to solve this problem, and it's not it's not in the entirely trustless space because of the Oracle problem of Bitcoin not even knowing that we exist, let alone that we live and die. And and that being the stage of it, but I do think that the, we will come over the coming hundreds of years, as to go with Alex's point here, to establish a chain of custody between life and death that adheres to Bitcoin, how Bitcoin functions. I like I've said before that I consider opening a lightning channel with somebody else to be the creation of a treaty between two sovereign entities. And that I intend to leave my channels in their open condition for well past my lifetime and, and pass them on to my heirs uh, as a peaceful trade route for people sending Satoshis across across them. That may be a little bit of a kind of a philosophical stake in the ground, but I think it's part of how you have to start to think about um, about Bitcoin. And, you know, if we're opening lightning channels and we expect them to stay open, they shouldn't have to close when one side of the party dies and hands their Bitcoin over to somebody else. So there's just there's so much space to explore here and to, and to discover. But I, I really I just want to be careful because I, I think people are maybe thinking, well, Tom is pessimistic about the future around this. And it's not that it's just I, I want to be realistic about the technical 
constraints and in what space we search for solutions. And, and, and so to me, when I was hearing everybody say, well, well, we have to find a trustless and non-KYC and this and that solution. It's like, well, you're, you're now hunting in an, in an empty space. We do have to figure out how to minimize the attack surface on trust, but we're going to have to have some element of, of trust. And that's not the end of the world. Like Bitcoin isn't taking us to a world where we don't trust anybody for anything ever. It's taking the trust out of the base layer money. And that's good enough. Or it's all we can get for now, at least. Uh, I don't think the the name Thomas Trollite and, and Pessimist is even capable of being put into the same sentence. <laughs> You're the biggest optimist I know in the space. So, Tomer, are you saying that that's just um, a fact of Bitcoin? That this, this trustless kind of thing is never going to have, is that what you're, is that kind of what you're saying? It's just never going to happen? Well, the, the trustless, and I think completely trustless inheritance planning is, it can only be solved if the Oracle problem is solved. And I don't think, I don't think we will solve that. Um, and so I, I don't, th I don't think you can get to it. I, but I, but I do want to say, Peter, like, I think we can get, we can make that surface area of trust increasingly over time smaller and smaller and smaller uh we just can never make it be completely eliminated yeah to to tomer's point i, I think it, the oracle problem is the big problem i mean if you look at like look at all the, the shit coins that have tried to implement uh a real world 3d space meat space oracle input into their smart contract it's it it leads to immense amount of fraud. And so until like our life and our identities are 100% digital and, and can live within a smart contract, I, it's going to be really hard to uh, solve without third-party trust. What about vaults and time locks? Yeah, I mean, that's like, totally... That's yeah, that, that's totally doable. Again, um, if it's... I would just say, you know, um, be careful around doing that uh, anonymously or non-KYC because you could actually leave your beneficiary in a worse spot um, from a tax basis perspective. Explain I mean, what you mean by that. Yeah, in like what way? Yeah, so, so, you know, right now the IRS looks at Bitcoin as property, right? So, so you buy it at $1,000, you sell it at a million dollars, uh, you've got $999,000 in capital gains. Now, if I buy it at $1,000 and I give it to my son when I die and it's valued in a million dollars, his cost basis is a million dollars. So he could sell it for a million dollars and have no tax. Do you know if that extends through, to, uh, and appreciate you might not, but, but do you know if that's the case for people living in the UK too? I, I don't. I, I'm only speaking about U.S. law um, and, and the IRS code there. But um, but yeah. So you know, at least here, uh, tax basis is 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 critical. Um, so you know, I want my kids to inherit that new tax basis, and so I would want them to be KYC'd. I would want my cost basis to be known, and. Um, uh, I mean, that's part of tax planning with estate planning is is the passing along of that cost basis at the higher amount. 
Yeah, I guess that's the part I don't understand. Like if I did a vault and a time lock and whatever, and then like, what's the difference of that or, and here's where I don't understand it, but like just going back to the gold analogy or, you know, like something like that, if I had a gold bar and I had it in a, not a vault, let's say in a safe and, you know, there was like a, you know, I died and then my heirs went to that safe and they took that gold bar out of there. I mean, what's their basis right then? Is it mine or is it when they got that gold bar, you know, I mean, I don't know. I know I'm probably talking. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, that's, you know, those are all. Same time, I mean, this is the question that I have. I mean, if I set up a yeah. vault, when that, when that fully becomes ready and I set up with time locks, I mean, if, if my kid gets the, gets the, gets the corn when, when it's, you know, available to them, wouldn't that be the, the cost basis right there? Based on what you're saying, yeah, I, I don't. Yes, no, it, it it would be as long as you're documenting it properly and and submitting uh, the final tax returns properly to the IRS, so that it doesn't come back and say bite him in the butt at some point in the future, where he goes to he goes to sell Bitcoin, he reports the inherited cost basis from your death, right? So he gets a higher cost basis, and he does a transaction that 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 creates a taxable transaction. And he says, no, no, no. My cost basis was on the date of death of my, my dad. And, um, and so it's much higher than when he bought it originally. So as long as that's all documented properly and reported properly, you're not going to have an issue. I, the only, I, that's why I, I, I preface by saying the time lock is great as long as you're not, as long as long as you're reporting properly, it's KYC'd and and it's all documented. But if you were using a time lock to uh, anonymous, anonymously transfer that Bitcoin, um, and then your your son got it, there was never any tax reporting. There's never any IRS reporting. He spent it. It could come back to him in the future, and they could say, "Wait a minute, when did you buy this Bitcoin? Prove to us." what your cost basis was and, Oh, you never reported. Now we have penalties. Now we have other issues or no, we don't think that's your cost basis. I, you have a zero cost basis. It's a hundred percent taxable transaction. So that's the part that I, I need to learn more about because in my mind, like here's how it works in my mind. Like the kid mm-hmm. gets the, gets the, the inheritance uh, it's not KYC. It's all handled through, you know, time lock ball, whatever. And then they go and buy a Citadel. Obviously, mm-hmm. they're going to be, you know, questioned or whatever. But I mean, the cost basis, again, it's, you know, so my dad didn't pay taxes or didn't whatever. But like this was bequeathed to me. You know, here's the number. Here's my coins, whatever. But it's like it's related to that to that inheritance moment. Right. I, I don't know. Right. Right. So so to defend himself from the IRS saying you owe tax on the sale of that Bitcoin, he would have to go back and say, well, I inherited the Bitcoin on this date from my dad. This is the date of death. This is the value of Bitcoin at the date of death. And there might, you know, and if they accepted that, there might be penalties for not having reported any of that properly to the IRS to begin with. If they didn't accept it, they could just say, well, we, we're, we're going to just say that you owe tax on 100% of that because we're, we can't track or you can't prove to us what your cost basis is properly. 
You know, I mean, the IRS, you're, you're guilty until proven innocent. So um, it's kind of like, you know, dealing with the mafia is the way I look at it. You just you have you've got to protect yourself up front from potential questions down the road. This is like actually such a good point, right? Because I'm thinking like if 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 you're not if you have non KYC Bitcoin, you try to pass it to your kids. How do your kids even prove who they got it from, right? Like they would be liable for the argument that you were just passing it to yourself, or like you know, like if you're not if it's not a hundred percent provable who was giving you the Bitcoin, you're kind of on the hook a little bit, um, which is it's kind of a big deal actually. What what happens when when Bitcoin? Um, I'm just curious. This is you know kind of on the same topic, but a little forward. What happens when Bitcoin is no longer classified as property, but is classified as currency now, under our current um, tax laws? How does that work? Well, so if you, if you don't, if we, I think the question is, if you eliminate, if capital gains were eliminated from Bitcoin and it just could exchange without uh, any taxable. Uh, gains or losses, um, then you would just you would have inherit you know estate tax. So if the um, value of what you were uh, transferring to your heirs was in excess, and this would include all assets, not just Bitcoin, but was in excess of uh, right now it's like twelve million dollars. The estate planning exemption, if it was in excess of that, then that inheritance would be taxed. But there are a number of trust and estate planning techniques that we have yet to get into uh, that, that high net worth people that exceed that estate tax uh, exemption number utilize to avoid or minimize that tax on the inheritance. So, um, it would solve, you know, removing capital gains would solve part of the problem, but not not all of the problem for the high net worth. All right, let's do this. We just dove in today. We didn't even <laughs> intro the show. Uh, and, and we went kind of backwards. Normally what we'll do is we do the subject matter, then we do questions after. We just started with the questions. So I mean, I'm fine with it. It's like whatever. I'm good. Well, what we should do right now is real quick, just hit announcements. Uh, we got Dr. Jeff up here. Maybe we can get a quick update from Dr. Jeff. Also, I don't, Lisa, I do see your hand. You've been so patient. I love you, girl. Like we're, we're coming to you here in just one second. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, we do talk about Bitcoin and we do it every day. Uh, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a pod on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. If you can't catch a live show on Twitter spaces, Swan IRA is live. We, by the way, we, we uh, set this up live for a huge chunk of our clients. We're rolling it out to the rest of our clients. Basically it's a one login thing where all of your IRA and all of your personal, all your, everything is going to be in one place. I know people have been asking for that for a real long time. He says That's going this live. every day and it triggers me every fucking day. We can, we can, Peter, we can roll your accounts together into the one login system. That's coming here within the next two weeks as well. I <laughs> uh, love you, man. Next year's tickets for Pacific Bitcoin are on sale at PacificBitcoin2023.com. And, oh, something else. From here on out, moving forward, Fridays, I am not going to be hosting Cafe Bitcoin anymore. We're going to be alternating between John Har 
and Sam Callahan. This is going to give me a chance to get some much needed rest. I've been running hard doing this thing for well over a year. And this isn't even my full-time job. I mean, I do this, like this takes up four hours a day, every day. And it's not even my job. So I could do my job after this. And uh, it's just got to the point where it's like a never ending uh, sprint. And I, I just need some rest. So I hope you guys are okay with that. Um, right. So Dr. Jeff, if you're willing, would you give us a quick, maybe five minute rundown on what you see is happening? Like this is a blistering feels like rip your face off bull run right now. Like what is going on here? First of all, Alex, I'm glad you're getting a break on Fridays, man. You're like the Bob Barker of, uh, of, uh, Bitcoin podcasts. I don't know if you know, you guys are all pretty, probably too young to know who Bob Barker is. He was the host of the Price is right. He's like the, you know, the goat of game show hosts. So that's, that's how I view you, Alex. So way to go, man. Way to take a break. Um, yeah, man. I mean, nothing's changed for me again. It's, uh, every, I, so just to recap for anyone who missed it, sorry, still, still short of breath. Uh, just, just to recap, um, everything changed in October of 2022 liquidity changed. Uh, you, you'll notice, uh, market dynamics just completely changed. If you go back and look at charts, um, across risk assets with the U.S. dollar, with uh, treasury yields, um, um, stocks, um, Bitcoin uh, was delayed a, a bit because of scam, uh, bank run, fraud. Um, so bless his heart, and uh, and so, but but it's making up for lost time here now. So um, with with that uh, kind of in my back pocket, and then looking at just what price action is doing, and um, looking at bond yields and things, my interpretation of it is. The market just doesn't really care about inflation anymore. The bond market thinks the Fed is getting close to pausing their rate hikes, um, even if they hike another 25 in February and then talk about hiking again uh, at the next meeting in mid-March. Um, the, the bond market doesn't care anymore. It's like, well, okay, we're done with you. Uh, it, the Fed at this point is risking pushing it too far. And if they do push it too far, they're going to precipitate a credit event uh, more quickly. So um, I think the markets are hoping they don't do that. I at this point, you know, and you know me, I was just massively bearish uh, for for all of last year. Um, I thought that things were going to kind of hit the fan, the proverbial fan, uh, soon, like this, the first half of 2023. They still could, um, but the longer that we kind of get this kind of Goldilocks type scenario, the longer that risk assets could run, and Bitcoin will run further than most risk assets because Bitcoin is not a risk asset, as we all know. Um, it's uh, the ultimate safe haven asset. It's just in price discovery mode, and it will be for most of this decade. Um, so, anyways. I'm bullish. Uh, until something changes, uh, I will continue to lean bullish. I think Bitcoin, the next major target that it has, and I think this is the last of the major targets from, from my perspective, it has to regain its 200-week moving average, which it, it, it uh, went under for the first time last year. It had never gone below that, and it did. Uh, it never had like stayed below it for a significant period of time, and it did. Uh, so that's at around $25,000 per Bitcoin. I think it actually could do that uh, by the weekend, this weekend. Uh, uh, I'm hoping things look super bullish from a, from from a technical perspective. In the in the long term, it looks super bullish. In the midterm, it looks super bullish. In the near term, which I get excited about, it looks super bullish. I look at even four hour charts, and uh, and, I, and most people shouldn't do any of this nonsense because it's just pure nonsense. Um, but it's very bullish. Like Bitcoin, it just it it rips higher, and then it takes a breather. And when it takes a breather, all of these short term momentum indicators reset. 
what they should do, what normally, what normal assets do is when it, when it gets overbought, then they, they pull back significantly and, and lose a lot of those gains. Bitcoin is like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to stay up here at this level uh, and I'll rest here for a bit. And then I'm going to surge higher again. So, so this stair stepping approach where, where it surges and then rests and goes sideways, surges and rests, that is just extremely bullish from a technical standpoint. Gets me super stoked. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm kind of a dork, uh, but it gets me stoked. Um, so, anyways, that's my stance. Hopefully, it makes sense. At some point, there still is probably a recession. Uh, I don't know when it's going to happen. There's a, a lot of smart people who are smarter than me are expecting it to happen any day. All I'm saying is, none of us know the future. This could go on for longer than most people assume. We may have months and months and months and months of of nice returns. Risk assets could surprise everybody to the upside. That would be the maximum pain trade, is if risk assets just ripped all year uh, while people sat on the sidelines waiting for a bear market to happen. So, anyways, I'll stop there. Thanks for having me up. Wow, that's a great. You do the best short recaps, man. So much information packed into such a short span of time. All right, uh, let's go back to what we were talking about before, inheritance planning, all the issues with inheritance planning, how do we do best practices? There, there are so many different factors here. Lisa, you've had your hand up for a bit. What are you thinking? I can do a shorter recap than Dr. Jeff. Just buy Bitcoin. Don't worry about it. Um, but I did have a question for Paul. Sorry, Dr. Jeff. I, I do love your recaps. I mean, you bring such... Um, People love technical analysis in Bitcoin. I, I don't get it personally. I mean, I do, but I, <clears throat> I guess, but I don't care. Um, just buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin, don't sell Bitcoin. But Paul, question for you. Um, it sounds like we need to be keeping track of our coins, right? Like if, if I'm going to pass Bitcoin on to my daughter and she has to prove at what price, um, she took possession of the Bitcoin. Do I need to be tracking coin by coin? Yes, I think that's a great idea. Um, now, it's like what, what Swan did with implementing the uh, cost basis um, sales or the, the um, tax loss selling. They made it super easy. I mean, I, I DCA on Swan and I took advantage here at the end of uh, twenty. 22 uh, to do one uh, massive uh, tax loss sale and record the cost basis across all the coins that I bought uh, during this bear market. So, um, I mean, it when your dollar cost averaging for, for many, many years, it can get massively complicated to track all those little transactions. So I do, I, I download the spreadsheet, I, I figure out what the cost basis is on each individual purchase. I'll do one big tax loss sell when I have the opportunity, and then I'll record that whole block. I'll put them in a separate address, and I'll record what the cost basis is of the coins in that address. And um, so, so I have ad, I got multiple addresses in cold storage with a cost basis recorded on on those addresses, um, uh, just in my personal records that I can, you know, hand to uh, my executor or whoever is my trustee at some point in the future. All right, Noodle. Yeah, I was just going to say that, <clears throat> and this is for Paul as well, in, in terms of all this information that, that, that you've given us and, and firstly appreciate all this information, but are we dealing with like hypotheticals or, or theoreticals? And, 
you know, I appreciate you can't give any personal details out, but have you had to deal with executives that have um, inherited Bitcoin? So do we know, you know, does all this stuff sort of, you know, stand true as and when it happens? Great, great question. So I have not had uh, a customer or client who owns Bitcoin who has passed away yet. Um, so we are just sort of planning for the hypothetical or I mean, foreseeable, but but estate planning law is is well known, and it, it's just a matter of how do we get this unique bare instrument where and these private keys uh, into the proper hands and uh, report it properly to the institutions uh, that we need to report it to. So. Um, I, I would I would say it, it is it is hypothetical, but it's or theoretical, however you want to look at it. But but no, this I mean the law that we're working in is not. Does that answer your question, or did I make things more confusing? No, no, no. It, it, it totally did. It's just that you know Bitcoin is what fourteen years old now, so right. I, I, I don't know. You know, and you know, in the grand scheme of things, fourteen years is is not you know, a, a long span of, of yeah. time. So it's just, in, I'd just be intrigued to know, you know, we're all talking about inheritance and, you know, appreciate all the, the advice you're giving, et cetera. But I, I suppose I was just intrigued to know if, if you know, that there have been, you know, some executors of any yeah. state that, that have had to kind of walk through this process. Now, and, and, Matt, yeah. And, I, and, you know, I can only speak from my client base and, and Matt, Matt is uh, drafting, documents for for people all over the world so he he would probably have some firsthand experience with the with the process and and how things were actually looked at from uh you know you know within within any i mean i, I don't think we've had any um challenges in court yet that i'm aware of but but matt might have some interesting information on that because that's a lot of times how these things get tested Somebody develops an estate plan, transfers the Bitcoin, a beneficiary is upset or some other uh, creditor is upset with the way things went down and they litigate. And, and through that process, we learn what estate planning techniques have stood up and, and worked properly and, and which ones haven't. Um, so it, these things do take time. But I think that'd be a great question to bring back to Matt once, once he's on the uh, program with us. Yep. And by the way, Matt will be here in the second hour, I think around the 15 minute mark. So that will be Matt McClintock. Paul Tarantino is also, for those of you who don't know, because we didn't actually do a proper introduction. We just started talking. But Paul is, uh, he's been involved in wealth planning, wealth management and estate planning for a long time. He's got 20 years of experience doing this. He's also vice president and a wealth advisor at Canandaigua. Boom, I said it right for the first time, Paul. Um, you nailed and they it. deal with this. Thank you. Thank you very much. And they deal with this kind of stuff all the time. We need a golf clap soundboard. Well done, sir. You can speak English. <laughs> Damn, that was good, Alex. You know, I wish, Wicked, I wish Wicked were here. Um, because my question may not be the, the the current panel may not be able to answer. I'm wondering if and how um, sediments may affect 
in, in inheritance planning. Yeah, right. You're that introduces <laughs> an, an entirely new like can of worms to that whole thing, doesn't it? And this is what we were talking about a little bit before, where it's like we're trying to establish what are the pathways here. You have the, you have the legal pathways, you have the technical pathways, you have the custody pathways, you have the governance pathways, and these things are all intertwined. And then you and then on top of that, you have different views of people about how they want to handle their their assets. Right? Go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say when I first learned about Fedimus, that was one of the first things that came to my mind was could like a uh, decentralized trust company use that protocol as a way to custody and then transfer Bitcoin to heirs that are all all wrapped into the same fediment. And um, it's a really great question. And I, I love thinking about the future of these kind of things and what's going to be built. Um, I, do, I wish we had a jurisdiction where there, we could just experiment and play with these kind of things. So I think this got some awesome future potential. Isn't this what's cool about Bitcoin, though? It's I mean, there's like all these different ways to access this network and to use this network. It truly is voluntary. And there's just like ways that I mean, there's there's whatever way you need to do it. There's like ways that are springing up. You know, it, it's just it's a, it's awesome to watch. The thing about the decentralized um, uh, trust, or however you you said it, Paul, the, the thing is with fediments, you do know who the who the, I, from my understanding, who the major sort of signers are, right? So there's still that link back to the KYC world there. It's well, you, you know, no, but you don't know with absolute assurity, right? There's, there's, there is the um, ability to to have some doubt as to who is who, and is it absolutely provable? Yeah, this is over my head. I don't understand it. I mean, the, the way, well, I'm still learning yeah, about them. I mean, this is all this is all hypothetical, and and would take some significant cryptography and, and proper coding to make it work but i mean when people enter a fediment they're anonymous bitcoin goes in and the fediments come out which is like your receipt of amount of bitcoin in that collaborative custody model the signers for the fediment it's a it's obviously it's a multi-sig i'm not certain whether the members of the fediment necessarily know who they all are um obviously in a in a decentralized trust company you would probably want to make sure you know who they are but if they're geographically diverse and um you know i guess uh and there was enough of them, you could have, you're going to have even more trust, right? I don't think there's, a, it's not like just a fixed two of three. I think with Fediment, you can have any number of signers. Um, so I don't know. It, it would have to be combined with some sort of smart contract that allows you to anonymously set up where your, uh, where your Bitcoin is sent or, or how your Fediments that represent your Bitcoin in, in the custody are sent to your heir. Um, so I'm not, you know, it, 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 it's interesting, but there's some work to be done for sure. 
So did you guys hear about this bankruptcy coin? <laughs> no. <laughs> what is this? It's they're they're put they're considering issuing a bankruptcy coin for the SBF shit. <laughs> Dude, you can't, you you can't make this stuff up. This is I love this space so much. The show yeah, goes on. A new shit coin called bankruptcy coin. Who who's issuing it? Who's or is this is just a joke at this point? I assume. I don't know. Uh, let me let me get the tweet. I'll throw it up in the nest because I don't know if it's just. This doesn't joke. sound like a joke. Yeah, but we're officially in clown world. Nothing is a joke anymore. It's Celsius, right? Oh yes, Celsius, not SBF. Good catch. Right. So, <laughs> a quick story. Back in 2019, there were some guys in the gold industry who were who were trying to get me to look into. This is while I was starting to deep dive. Bitcoin more, and they were trying to get me to look into creating a uh, a gold backed token of some sort. That's that's when I started researching all the different coins, and that's when you know what what clued me into the thought that all that was a gigantic scam is when I ran across across homeless coin. I'm not making that up. Homeless coin. Yeah, somebody issued homeless coin, and when I saw that, I was like, this is all a scam. Dogecoin isn't what did it. It was homeless coin. It was homeless coin. (laughs) (laughs) You can't, like you said, you can't make it up, man. The extent of the nonsense is just incredible. You you guys are, I don't think you guys are grasping and really valuing how many different Netflix documentaries are going to come out of this space in the next, like, Five to ten years. Uh, yeah, maybe so, but we're not subscribing to Netflix because we could take that fifteen ninety nine and buy Bitcoin. Amen, uh, well, Lisa. I guess I'm not maxi enough because I still enjoy my Netflix subscription. Wakes us. You probably still have <laughs> chairs. My my Netflix subscription came with my my phone, so my phone plan. So I don't pay for it, right? Uh, <laughs> You have a phone plan, Peter? I don't pay for it, right? You're short Bitcoin. And yes, I have a phone plan because my dependents can't seem to figure out how to pay for their phones. Don't be an enabler. Yeah, you know, some things, Lisa, are just not worth fighting. I'm here to tell you that one is. I'm like a no bullshit parent. I'm like, dude, you're you're a grown up. Uh, You can pay your own bills or not have it. I don't care. Your choice. Road ahead is yours. I wasn't talking about my kids when I was talking about my dependents. (laughs) You're talking about your, your dogs have cell phones. Peter's life is complicated. I would uh He's like wives and girlfriends or may I may I say something? You, Alex you tried to uh and girlfriends on the same plan. Alex tried to sneak this by us, but today we have a very, very special birthday. So I just wanna get the uh, vibe started. Happy birthday, Alex. This is uh trying to sneak it away from us. Hold on, hold on, you mean it's not Ant's birthday? Isn't it Ant's birthday today too? 
I was born in 1913. You're the man. My fellow Aquarian. Big up, Alex. No, thanks. Happy birthday, man. How old are you, 18? Yeah, 25 plus 27 years of experience. <laughs> and getting better. Wouldn't, wouldn't that just be awesome, 25 with 20, plus 27 years of experience? What do you mean, so wouldn't it be awesome? That, that's the way it is, Peter. Okay, I guess Alex has a much more complicated life than we thought as well. It's a good way to spend a birthday. You guys are some good people. God, you got a great present too, didn't you? No no more no more cafe Bitcoin on Fridays for Alex. What a what an awesome birthday present. Well, Maybe because I bet you'd be listening. He's gonna wake up at that time and not know what to do with himself. Oh, I'll have plenty to do. <laughs> oh, he already does that. He already does that on Saturdays and Sundays. Of course, that's along with the rest of us, right? I just feel very humbled and blessed to be part of this community, part of this show, part of. Man, I've learned so much from you guys, made some great friends. It's been an awesome journey. Dude, when looking it all started to... in the summer, like it's been it's been a pretty wild route so far. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. Well, next we're gonna get pretty soon, you're gonna start noticing this influx of newbies coming into Bitcoin Twitter. And it's gonna be like a whole new round. It's gonna be a yeah. whole new setup where we've got to like talk all of these points again. And they're going to come up with all of these same arguments and questions that we already, it'll feel like we just figured this out. Like we just literally stopped talking about this and we're going to do it all over again. You sound like you speak from experience in this. Yeah, I'm two and two, two up, two down. We'll see. We'll see if we can make it through to the next one. Stay humble, stack sets and stay solvent. Yeah. yeah, it's all the hey, same so. stuff, guys. It's all the same stuff, but it's also like the plot is majorly thickening. You know, the stew is getting so much more interesting right now. You've got like all of the technology that's being developed on top of Bitcoin. You've got the energy companies waking up to Bitcoin. I mean, I'm sure I'm missing 800 pieces that are out there, but it's so much more interesting than just the macro or the money or, you know, anarchism or whatever it is. That's so funny, Lisa. When you said stew, the first thing that came to mind was the dead bodies that are floating to the surface. Oh, my God, dude. Like, I'm a dark tetrad. I didn't even go to that level. Yeah, Peter's got a streak. <laughs> Just waiting to see what the next one is. That's all. I mean, that's the beauty of holding Bitcoin, right? And not not uh, not playing around, not fucking around and seeing what happens is you get to sit on the sidelines and watch what happens and not participate in the downside. 
it really is the greatest show on earth, right? To be on this side of it and to not want to, to know that you're not going to trade Bitcoin. You're never going to try and time the market. Like to me, just watching the antics around me and the people that are figuring it out. And I'm, oh, I'm only trading these other coins so that I can buy Bitcoin. It's like, I don't know. You don't have to have Netflix. You can just listen to these bozos. But I don't pay for Netflix, right? I forgot. You don't pay for Netflix. So my point, my point, of course, in saying that is, um, you know, if something is for free, it's not. You're paying for it in some way, shape, or form, via via the the service that the the cost of the service that you're in, via your data, whatever it is, um, you know. And if you look around and you don't realize where that's coming from, it's coming from you. Get your Bitcoin off of exchanges. Yeah, first buy some Bitcoin, then take it off. And it's going to be yours and only yours. And you can even take it with you to the to the grave. And if that happens, the beauty of it is it it without uh Without prejudice, it becomes everybody else's. Wow. Yeah. Who was it yesterday that was saying that you have to take your annual burn rate and then times it by 20 or something, multiply it by 20 in order to get the number of Bitcoin that you need to live the rest of your life? Like, I, I think that was the most discouraging thing I've ever heard in Bitcoin. Um, I, I don't know. What? Do you guys have an opinion? Was Aunt, was that you who said that yesterday? Nah, I didn't say that. Did that come from the discussion we were having about why Shinobi um, said 50 Bitcoin was what was necessary to make yes. it? Yes, yes, exactly. Hmm. Well, I guess I misunderstood because I remember talking about that, but I didn't say it in that way. It was quite it a was, high bar, no? Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that conversation was around like the rising cost of goods because of inflation and things, along with uh, what we were talking about. So Max Kaiser did say at one point that you need at least twenty, if I remember correctly. This was probably a year ago. Yeah, but what does that even mean? You you need 20 when, right? Like, I mean, I probably spend more money than some people, and there's other people that spend a shit ton more money than I do. Like, how, how do we arrive at the right number? Not to do yeah, it's really numbers. subjective. It's really subjective, and I really don't believe you need 20, right? Especially with what we know the, the number is going to be going to in the future. 20 is quite a bit and right now it's not even easy for the average joe to even get one so 20 i think it's it's really too much well bitcoin is still under twenty three thousand per bitcoin if you're waiting stop waiting <laughs> you can buy four thousand three hundred and sixty sats per U.S. cuckbuck right now. It's not too late. 
and uh, we're already 91.77% of the way to mining all of the Bitcoin that will ever be mined in the history of the human race. So where this is going, I mean, nobody knows, but I think divided by 21 million is possible. You know, I did, I did, I did, I did, I did think it was funny when, when Jamie Dimon said, you know, Satoshi's going to pop up at 21 million and go, ha ha. I, I just thought that was, it just makes me laugh. Just thinking about that. He didn't do himself any favor, any favors doing that. Did he? Yeah. He, he, he just expressed his, not just for, for the Satoshi thing, but the, how do you know it's not going to increase by more than 21 million supply. He just expressed his complete ignorance and just kind of confirmed to to all of us, what we already know, the guy's just dunking on Bitcoin because, you know, it shits on his party. Yeah, it's incredible that a man like that doesn't understand money, yet he he runs a bank and has absolutely, like, zero integrity to get on TV and say that to the American people, or the population of the world, it's like... Uh, I think he understands, at least he understands the beast. He's stupid. But he doesn't You're in a wind tunnel. All right. You know, the, um, the other thing that he said that was that was pretty, pretty incredible was he said, oh, well, you know, we do things wrong all the time. And he was implying, he was talking about the fines that, that people incur and the illegal things that that uh, happened and he kind of implied that he encourages people to do those kinds of things to push the to, to bump up against the guardrails uh, and man I don't know how many billions of dollars they have been fined over the years but it is a I think they're the most fined bank in the world I want to welcome up Matt McClintock to the stage good morning thanks for joining us Good morning, sir. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. Doing great. At the moment that you came into the show, we <laughs> the conversation obviously ranges pretty pretty wildly. <laughs> uh, probably wondering what the heck are these guys talking about. Um, so we're in the second hour now, and we're going to be focusing in on Matt and Paul, and again on inheritance planning. We had kind of a Q and A first half of the show actually, because Paul was on here early. We had some speakers come up and we just started talking about stuff, which is fine. Um, but let me just give a quick introduction for those of you who don't know who are joining us now. Our two featured guests today are Paul Tarantino, Matt McClintock. Paul has been involved uh, in financial wealth management for over 20 years. He's a founding member of the Florida Blockchain Business Association. He's vice president, wealth advisor at Canandaigua when they deal with setting up trust, helping people set up trust, manage trust, do custody of trust. Matt uh, is sort of, uh, trying to think of the best way to explain this, but he's, he's a lawyer. He's a legacy strategist for innovators, disruptors, mavericks, the crypto affluent. It's all on his Twitter. But he does basically complex trusts, asset protection, privacy matters for ultra high net worth clients and serves on 
distribution, philanthropy, investment, audit-related committees for very wealthy people in Bitcoin. And he's got sort of at the coal face on the ground constructing these very complex structures in some cases for people to protect their wealth moving forward. So well, both you guys. Thanks. I think I'm going to hire you to introduce me all the time, Alex. That was, I, I hope to live up to those, uh, <laughs> those flattering comments. No pressure. You, you got this man. Uh, all right. If you guys want to, well, let me, let me do this. Let me kind of, we, this will be the third episode where we're talking about inheritance planning. In our first two episodes, we talked about, well, I'm just going to run through the list. We, we talked about estate planning type documents and roles. We talked about wills, trusts, beneficiaries. We talked about power of attorney, uh, revocable trust, irrevocable trust. You can go back in our history and look at the, uh, the podcast if you want to listen to those. Uh, we talked about titling property, which is kind of uh, a, a really important thing. We touched on that a little bit in the show earlier with Paul. Um, we also started talking about self-custody uh, and the whole not your keys, not your coins thing. There's a couple of areas that we still need to kind of dig into. And I'll, I mean, I'll let you guys cover this how you want to, and then we'll obviously open it up for more questions here in a little bit. But we still need to talk about things like jurisdiction, directed trusts, um, having how to select an attorney to help you sort of draft these structures finding uh, proficient trustees and executors, and then a little bit about multi-sig key management. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you guys. What do you guys want to hit first? What do you want to talk about first? Um, there, go ahead, Paul. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that there's also some other things that I think Matt and I were looking at in regards to that weren't specific to Bitcoin, but are considerations for estate planning. Uh, around your healthcare decisions, uh, around selecting trustees and executors. Um, so there's there's still a lot to cover. Uh, Matt, did you did you have any po point in this uh, outline that we have where you wanted to start from today? Um, you know, I think I think I'd probably like to start the way I, I try to comment at least every time we talk. And that is, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoiner, class of 2017. Um, you know, I, I tuned in and, and heard a lot of the conversation a bit early and kind of was lurking a little bit. Um, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of the ethos just really resonates. So uh, let me kind of preface with that. I believe in the power of sovereignty, especially self-sovereignty. And for me, that really this is going to be a bit heretical, but that really has nothing to do with Bitcoin. That has to do with taking control of your life. And um, the reality is that the, if we don't proactively design a series of strategies from very basic to very complex, depending on what our needs are, then we are not exercising our sovereignty. We are surrendering our self-sovereignty to the default rules of the stat of the state statutes wherever we happen to live or the jurisdiction where we happen to live if we're if we're living outside the united states every government in every jurisdiction around the world has default rules for who gets to make decisions for you who gets to make medical decisions who gets your stuff if you become incapacitated or if you die 
and you don't have a legally enforceable strategy in place. And in, until the world burns down and we're all sitting in the Citadel somewhere, that's just the way it is. So we can either um, just defer our decision-making to the jurisdiction where we live, or we can be proactive about that. And so a lot of what I've really spent my last 20 plus years of my career on is helping people create and kind of exercise that sense of self-sovereignty over their medical decisions and over their property decisions. And as, as time goes on and assets get more complex, now we've got digital assets that have no physical manifestation in the real world, but we have these digital bearer assets like Bitcoin. Um, it becomes that much more important to plan, especially because the judiciary is slow in figuring out how, how to deal with these things. And I guess the final point I'm going to make on the soapbox for now is that, um, you know, the, the, the picture of family has been shifting very, very dramatically over the course of the last 20 years. The idea of marriage is very different. Um, and if you are in a relationship with someone that is, and that relationship is very important to you, perhaps you even raised a family together. If you are not in a legally recognized relationship, that person you built your life with has no legal right to make medical decisions for you, make property decisions for you, or receive any of your property, even if you've lived with that person for, for decades. So um, don't, don't fall into the default arms of the state where you live or the country where you're living. Exercise your sovereignty and, um, and do, create a plan that is legally enforceable. And it's, you know, I'm grateful for Alex and the, and the team at Swan and Cafe Bitcoin for giving Paul and me the opportunity to kind of preach the gospel of, of true self-sovereignty. Great introduction. So, Paul, I mean, I know one of the things we've talked about is some of these more complex issues like irrevocable trusts. We've, I think we touched on that a little bit last time. One of the things I, I want to kind of zero in on a little bit is uh, as Alex's point about selecting jurisdictions for planning. Um, there are, I guess, one thing I'd like to maybe kind of zero in on is that there is a just a wild Joseph cloak of, of laws across the country. I'm sitting here from the free, from the freedom capital of North America today, San Francisco. Um, he says tongue in cheek. And, um, you know, here in California, um, where fortunately I do not live, I'm just here on business. Um, this, the top state level income tax is currently 13.3%. And that's before you even get to write a check to uncle Sam. Um, that's the top income tax rate right now. Um, there have been proposals in the California legislature to add, an, add a surtax on top of that um, to make it over 16%. Uh, it's not there yet, I don't believe. But um, then you've got jurisdictions like Texas and Florida and Wyoming and South Dakota and Tennessee and other places that have no state-level income tax. Um, there are more protective laws in some states than others. And if you're doing any type of significant estate planning in a place like California um, or New York or a handful of other more, you know, air quotes, progressive jurisdictions, uh, it's much harder for you to protect your assets either from your own potential creditors 
or even for you to protect the inheritance of other people. Uh, when you leave any kind of wealth behind for children, for a spouse or partner, for other beneficiaries. So uh, I guess the good news there is that with some sophisticated planning, it doesn't really matter where you live. Uh, it matters where you design your estate plan. And so uh, we have the luxury, we have the freedom under the law to invoke the laws of any number of jurisdictions in order to achieve our objectives from a planning perspective. Um, yeah, it becomes increasingly complex. And with that increased complexity, frankly, it becomes more expensive um, from a planning perspective. But you don't have to be a gazillionaire and, and go crazy with your planning in order to kind of start to optimize your estate planning structures, uh, at least to protect your children or other beneficiaries. And in some cases, to even protect yourself from potential future creditors. And this is simply the world of, of asset protection planning. Um, it gets kind of a dirty name, a bad name sometimes, because people think, well, you're, you're trying to defraud creditors. You're trying to, you know, hide the money from somebody that you have a legitimate, that has a legitimate claim against you. But that's, that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about creating protective structures, protecting your, your own legal citadel, if you will, so that if at some point in the future, um, something were to occur that could um, stand in the way of you and your freedom and your wealth, uh, you can do that if you plan in advance, at least in, in many jurisdictions. So, um, Paul, I don't know if we want to go deeper on the asset protection component of this, whether we're talking about planning for uh, beneficiaries or planning for ourselves. Um, we can kind of take this in any direction. I think the asset protection is as good a topic as any for today. It's um, it is it is a very pertinent topic when we start to think about the way the world is functioning today and and the potential of changes uh, that could be coming down the line. So I think I think this would be a good uh, rabbit hole. Okay, yeah, and Alex, if 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 you uh, feel me pulling at the leash in the wrong direction, just jerk it, and I'll I'll come right back in. And if and at any time. Um, folks want to ask questions. I'm, I'm open to any types of questions. I guess I do need to, um, here, my, here's as good a time as any for me to inter interject my, my little disclaimer that although I am a practicing attorney, nothing that I'm saying here is designed to be legal advice to anybody here. Um, always talk with a, a licensed attorney when you're talking about something that is specific for you. Um, there's any number of different strategies out there that can be appropriate. And um, unless you are technically my client, nothing that we're talking about here creates an attorney-client relationship. Sorry about that. My ethics rules require that I do that. So anyway, um, so in, I guess in the context of, of asset protection planning, like anything, uh, it's a whole broad spectrum of what you can do. Um, most states have uh, what are called homestead exemptions which means that, um, you know, under the, under the state statutes of most states here in the United States, um, there are certain classes of assets that are secure from potential creditor claims. And it's, again, it's all over the map. Some states are better than others. Um, in Colorado, my home state, I believe the value of the home equity that is protected from creditors caps out at like $65,000 which can get you a pretty nice 
refrigerator box on the banks of Cherry Creek in Denver. Um, so not much from a homestead protection perspective in Colorado. In Texas, I believe it's damn near unlimited. Um, same thing in Florida. Uh, so that's just one example. Uh, in other cases, the cash value of life insurance, if you have a cash balance on your life insurance, often in many states, that cash value is protected from the claims of creditors. A lot of states protect retirement accounts, whether that's a Roth or a traditional IRA, uh, but qualified retirement plans are often uh, protected from the claims of potential creditors. Um, but again, that's like the base level of asset protection planning. Then, of course, we always want to make sure that folks have the largest, uh, you know, liability umbrella coverage. Um, you know, you could, especially the, the wealthier you are, the bigger insurance policy you want, because, um, you know, the, the wealthier you are, the, the more of a deep pocket you're perceived to be in the eyes of potential creditors. But then once we've done the basic blocking and tackling like that, at least from, from my perspective, we start looking at legal entities that start to change the relationship, if you will, between you and your wealth. For a lot of people, especially with business interests, uh, we look at things like limited liability companies. Um, those limited liability companies could hold operating businesses. They could hold investment businesses. They could hold real estate portfolios. Um, but understand that there's a profound difference, again, in the level of LLC protection uh, from one state to the next. And here we're talking about what's called the corporate veil. Uh, if you want to have your assets protected by the limited liability company itself, um, you have to you have to actually treat those assets as though they are a business uh, of sorts. Um, and some jurisdictions like South Dakota and Wyoming, Nevada, and then some offshore jurisdictions like uh, Nevis offer extensive protection, uh, very robust corporate veil. Delaware is another one, which is why a lot of people incorporate or create their LLCs in Delaware. Um, but then other states like Colorado, uh, where I live, certainly California, other places like that, the LLC structure is not as robust. Uh, so, you know, there are limited liability company structures. There are limited liability, limited partnership structures that provide some type of corporate veil protection. And then the question becomes, who is the title owner of the assets? Who is the ultimate title owner of the assets? Um, so we could have our assets inside of an LLC, but then the question becomes, who owns the LLC? And if I individually own a limited liability company, and inside that limited liability company are a lot of assets that look for all the world like personal use assets, and then I injure somebody or get sued by somebody, there's not a lot of protection that's likely going to apply to me. But on the other hand, if I have assets that are in an irrevocable trust, established in the right jurisdiction, administered carefully for the benefit of myself and other beneficiaries, um, with some exceptions, I could have significant protection against the claims of future creditors. Um, so maybe I'll kind of pause there and see, Paul, if there's any comment you wanted to add to that or if you wanted to comment at all. Um, well, I, I guess maybe 
I could look at this as asking you a couple questions um, that might lead us into the discussion about irrevocable trust. Um, because I think it's important for people to understand uh, that they are giving up ownership of assets when they move into an irrevocable trust, that now this entity owns uh, those assets and is managing those assets. You've created this gap between you and uh, those assets. Um, and that that there are different, and I'm not sure about other di- jurisdictions, I'm just talking about Florida now, there are, is a uh, um, uh, a higher, uh, let's just say, tax rate on irrevocable trust than mm-hmm. uh, pass-through trust like a revocable trust. So there, there's a lot of nuances there that I think we could go into. Yeah, I mean that's a whole that's a whole warren of rabbit trails in itself. But I'm I'm happy to go in any in any direction you want to go there. But you I mean you really kind of zeroed in on the probably the biggest concession that we have to make when we do any type of irrevocable trust planning. And that is we do have to uh, kind of create an air gap between ourselves and the direct control over the assets. Um, We, um, and I see, uh, see, I think it's uh, Peter, I think I'll I'll get to you in just a sec. Um, But depending on what we want to achieve, from a tax perspective, from an asset protection perspective, we probably will want to have some type of professional trustee like a Canandaigua or somebody like that who can serve as the third party kind of air gapped trustee, if you will. Um, but that trustee is always accountable to the person who created the trust. So uh, even though you know, if I put my assets in a trust and I want to get those assets out of my estate for transfer tax purposes or for asset protection purposes, and I appoint somebody like Canandaigua as the trustee, I can always, always remove and replace Canandaigua and re- and select another trustee who simply has the same type of qualifications. So, um, yes, I I do have to, in the case of my Bitcoin, for example, I have to have a third party trustee who then has a custodial relationship with a carefully curated asset custodian. And I no longer have the keys to the Bitcoin that I put in that trust. And yeah, I know that that's heretical in, you know, in a lot of circles, but um, under the context of the jurisdictions of the laws where we live right now, that's the best I can do in order to have asset protection over the Bitcoin I put in there. And so that that Bitcoin is now out of my estate for, for transfer tax purposes. So you know, I, I'd and, like to hear from Peter real fast. Yeah. I, I was just going to add real quick, Matt, and to your point, that's the entire reason why Canandaigua National Trust Company uh, is a licensed national trust company in Florida. You know, we are a wholly owned subsidiary from uh, the, the original institution in New York, uh, and we opened our doors by moving irrevocable trust to the Florida jurisdiction so that they could benefit from having no income tax in the state. Um, so, so th- that sort of just kind of illustrates the, what the points that Matt was making and how this irrevocable trust is an entity separate from yourself and can move to other jurisdictions uh, and seek those benefits out while you might be a resident of another state. So, um, Matt, I had a question about the irrevocable trust, and, and I, I'm 
kind of assuming that this is you don't own the money, but you sort of control the money. Um, just talking in kind of cash terms. And so my, I guess my question is, if someone has an irrevocable trust and that trust is designed to benefit them and their heirs, the trust could purchase a house, for example, that the, um, that, that the person who, who the trust is tied to could then live in that house. But when that house is sold, eventually, um, the, the, all of the, all of the proceeds or the, uh, liabilities go to the trust. Is that, do I kind of have that, uh, idea correct with the irrevocable trust? Yeah, you do, Peter. Um, that's a really, that's, that's a really important point too, because, um, in the context of irrevocable trust planning, there's, there's, there's so many interesting things you can do. Uh, again, depending on the nature of the trust and the nature of the trust's effect, efficacy depends on the jurisdictions that you use. But in some states and in some foreign countries, you can create an irrevocable trust that for your own benefit as well as for the benefit of others. And even though you can't be the trustee, uh, you can be what we often refer to as a trust investment advisor. And then it's your job you know, again, it's your job, your freedom, your right to direct the trustee to invest those trust assets according to your wishes. And so long as it's not illegal uh, or causes the trustee to breach the trustee's fiduciary duty to administer the trust for the benefit of the beneficiaries, then, yeah, you could, uh, you know, the, for example, the trustee doesn't sell Bitcoin until you say sell Bitcoin. If you've got cash or equities or something else in there, you can tell the trustee, I want you to liquidate those equities and buy a house or buy a you know, buy some property for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And oh, by the way, that includes me. Um, and then when that property, if you if you decided later on, not the trustee, but if you decided later on you wanted to sell that property, you simply direct the trustee, sell the property. Now we've converted to fiat or whatever. And then you tell the trustee, buy more Bitcoin or buy equities or buy you know, Swiss francs or something else like that. So yeah, you've got a ton of, um, I refer to it as kind of like lowercase C control versus capital C control. Um, you know, you, you can't have that capital C control. You can't actually be the title holder. You can't actually be the key holder. You can't actually be the signatory on the account. Um, but you can control the person or entity that does have that direct control. Um, so you know, I think that hopefully that answers the question, but you, you really kind of zero it in on another part of what I think is really basic estate planning, uh, basic, at least asset protection or inheritance protection planning. And that is that even in your, I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I'm, I don't want to conflate issues here, but <clears throat> back when we were talking, um, maybe it was last, last time around, Paul, we were talking about how to design even your own basic revocable living trust. You have the ability to create a trust, even a revocable trust that you fully control, that provides no asset protection for you, but you have direct control, including over private keys. But then when you die, you can actually design the inheritance for your spouse or partner, your kids or whomever, in a way that allows them to be the beneficiary of the trust and to be able to, if it's age appropriate, make investment decisions for that trust, but the trust continues indefinitely for their benefit. 
So then, you know, maybe, you know, you, you leave behind even a few hundred thousand bucks or, you know, Bitcoin goes, you know, hockey stick again. And now the Bitcoin is worth a million bucks per token or whatever we think it's going to be. Um, rather than you die and you distribute that or your trust distributes that outright to your kids, it's a much better structure to say, well, rather than distribute that outright, we can protect that with the trust for the benefit of our kids. Our kids can then be the investment decision makers, again, if it's appropriate. But unless and until the assets are distributed from the trust, um, then they've got almost absolute asset protection over the inheritance you left behind for them. Um, so again, if there's Bitcoin in there and it, you know, it, it's time to take some top, take some off the top, we want to monetize this somehow, either with a loan against it or whatever, then the kid can simply direct the trustee to make that decision. The trustee then buys a house for the kid to live in. The kid does not have to pay rent because of the beneficiary of the trust. If the kid T-bones somebody in an intersection and they get sued, well, those assets are almost impervious to creditor claims. So kind of at, at its core, the, the idea behind any type of trust planning is sovereignty. And the key behind irrevocable trust planning is a combination of sovereignty. It can be asset protection. It can be tax mitigation. Um, so, I mean, lots of really interesting reasons to do irrevocable trusts. Paul, you, you zeroed in on something yeah. I think is worth Yeah, I was just I was going to say, you, you, I think you hit on a really great topic here. And um, it is about 90% of the trusts that we see start as, because I'm in, I'm, in a, I'm in a different market than Matt. So, uh, but 90% of the trusts that we see here start as revocable trusts where the grantor is in control of all the assets can amend the document, commit, you know, make changes, whatever they want to do to the trustee, to the beneficiaries, to the language in the trust, et cetera. But most of the plans that we have here, uh, when that grantor passes, it cre on that, on that, at that point in time, it creates that revocable trust creates an irrevocable trust for a beneficiary and it is doing so to either protect that beneficiary or protect the assets. And, and what I mean there is that if you had a child with special needs, if you had a child who was a, uh, let's say had a spending problem or just wasn't good at managing money. Uh, if you had a child whose spouse you didn't trust, you didn't believe had your child's best interests at heart, this irrevocable trust becomes a very important tool for protecting those assets specifically to benefit your child and not others. And then um, I thought it'd be another good topic to go down here, which is that I want to make sure everybody's aware that, that just because um, you have an irrevocable trust where you're allowed or you believe that you're allowed to direct the trustee to purchase you a home, I would say from the view of a trustee, it's very important that you have them read that document and that you have some sort of confidence that they are going to side with you on the language in that document before having them 
appointed as trustee. Um, I've seen a lot of times where we'll bring in a trust, the beneficiary coming uh, that's going to be a part of that has a certain set of beliefs of what they think the trust says they uh, should receive, what benefits they should receive. Uh, And the current trustee is not of the same belief. So uh, we are always sort of pushing people to be as clear as possible in their language, um, especially if they have specific things that they, they would like to see happen for the beneficiaries or for themselves down the road. Uh, Matt, I'm sure you've got a lot more to say about that topic, but um, I yeah, I mean, one things you said, one thing that you said that really kind of triggered me, Paul, to think about one of the questions that Alex kind of seeded this with, and that is how do you select an attorney? And this is not intended to be self-serving at all, because you know I I can only handle so much. The, but what you're talking about is critical in making sure that the trust documents you know, the, the trust agreements that set forth the provisions by which a trust estate is going to be managed, they really have to be closely tailored to what it is that you want. A form is not sovereignty. Um, sovereignty is taking the time to think about what's important to you in your life and putting it in writing in a way that's legally enforceable. To your point, Paul, um, you know, I've, I've got I've got two kids. <clears throat> I love them desperately. One of them's married to a, a, a person I really love as well. And you know, getting to know that person of the last few years, and I mean, just really, really, he, he's like the son that I never had. Um, so I think I love this kid, but I'm not ready to give him half the inheritance that I would would leave behind to that daughter. So, and if you were to look at my own estate plan, you'd see that um, I, you know, I started my estate planning process for myself in 2001, shortly after I got out of law school. And you know, this has been an iterative process because as I've grown and matured, as my kids have grown and matured, uh, I, I see the world differently. And, and they are different humans. And I'm a different human than I was 22 years ago. Um, and so it's been an iterative process. And all along the way, I have had to revisit my estate plan with the perspective that circumstances have changed. I understand things differently than I did 22 years ago. Um, and when I, when I ultimately, you know, slip off the side of the planet and I'm gone, I know that my wife is going to be protected because the stuff that we have built together over life is going to be in an irrevocable trust for her benefit of which she can be the trustee because that's a revocable trust, but it kind of creates some side pockets, if you will. She's the trustee and beneficiary of that. And then when she ultimately passes away, we have trusts that will continue for the benefit of our daughters as long as those trusts are economically viable. Um, And so my kids don't get an outright distribution that just says, hey, congratulations, you turned X age. Here's half of everything that I had. And that's just a dumb way to plan. Because you never know, you know, when they hit that magic birthday where they get this outright distribution or the right to withdraw property from the trust, you have no idea what's going on in their lives. Maybe they just T-boned a school bus last week. Maybe they're in the middle of a divorce. Uh, I don't want half of my wealth to go to my ex-son-in-law. So um, 
there are there are some there are some of these decisions that can be largely automated through a lot of uh, drafting techniques that estate planning attorneys can use. But you know those as sophisticated as forms and templates can become, that really is only like seventy percent of the way there because you know the estate plan when we're when we're dealing with the decisions that have to get made if you're incapacitated or when you die, if we're dealing with something that important, it's worth taking some time, thinking about it, and finding um, trusted attorneys who focus their practice on that. These, you know, you should, when you're looking for estate planning attorneys or somebody to help you with your estate plan, don't go to somebody who does ambulance chasing and dog bites and car wrecks and divorce law. And oh, by the way, I do wills. No, that's crap. Um, find somebody who is an artist in the space and it is as much art as it is science. Because, yeah, there's the science of understanding what the law is, where the jurisdictions are, how to design those types of things to make it legally enforceable. But the art comes in listening carefully, um, both for the substance of what somebody says as well as the, the meaning behind what they say and taking the time to ask questions uh, and, and provide some guidance without being pedantic in, in how they design it. And I guess the, the final point that I would make there, I guess, well, I guess too, the estate planning attorney, at least for your foundational basic estate planning, like the revocable trust, um, they need to be somebody who is very familiar with the laws of your jurisdiction where you live, because that's, you know, that's what's going to govern what happens to you when you're incapacitated. And, you know, if there's a probate because you have some assets outside the trust, all that stuff has to be coordinated. The more advanced stuff um, is usually not going to be based in your own jurisdiction unless you happen to live in one of these good protective jurisdictions. Often you're going to be using a, a large, you know, um, an estate planning firm that has a lot of expertise in target jurisdictions like, again, South Dakota or Texas or Wyoming or places like that. Um, and uh, the other point I was going to make is I would really encourage you to try to find somebody who um, – especially an estate planning attorney who will work by the project and not by the hour because, um, the, you know, I, I do virtually no hourly based work. Um, you, you want to find somebody who is patient enough to sit down with you and define a clear scope of work, make sure you understand what your options are. And then once you have that clear scope of work, then they can quote a fixed fee. Um, and unless you move the goalposts, that fixed fee shouldn't change. Um, so, hey, you know. Matt, can I yeah, just yeah. ask? Uh, so yeah. I used to be in health counsel and health and big law. I, I love that. Um, I just want to understand in your experience, how often do the goalposts change? How do you work with your clients so that they kind of are very like ask all the questions and give all the background so they can make all the the right decisions to give you the proper sort of framework and guidelines so the goalpost doesn't change too much? That's a great question, um, Terrence. So what I've done in my practice, you know, even even before I kind of got to this stage where I'm at right now, I would sit down with a potential client. I'm not on the clock. They're not paying for anything. And I would spend up to hour and a half, maybe up to two hours, just getting to know them. Um, you know, we would have a kind of an intake process and they would have expressed some interest at some point and then we'd have them fill out a questionnaire and give us just a basic idea of why the hell they want to talk to me in the first place. Um, and then we'd sit down 
And for, for clients with more modest estates where you're not really getting a super complex tax stuff, you can really focus on those more qualitative aspects, the, you know, what their objectives are, and you can kind of guide that process. And then you can say, okay, that, you know, we need to, I suggest we do this. I suggest it look like that. And then the client would green light that and say, okay, the fee is X. Um, and so then they'd, they'd, you know, pay the fee and I'd, you know, get my work done. And then, you know, if, if I misunderstood and I didn't scope the work properly, then that's on me. If on the other hand, they said, you know, um, I just remembered that, um, I, my grandfather died two weeks ago and I'm about to get a big inheritance. Okay. Well, that changes the goalpost. Let's finish this initial thing that we've got a scope of work on and then we'll do another thing. You know, so it's, we, you know, we would try to not change that scope of work and create a new scope of work as well. I don't know if that answers the question or not, but that's, uh, no, that's excellent. Thank you. I'll add to that is that as a trust company, uh, very rarely will we uh, sit down with a client who's already drafted a trust <clears throat> where where we don't discover that they don't either fully understand it or that through the discovery process, they want to make substantial changes. And I think, Terrence, you asked the question about how often these things might, how often these documents might change. Um, we spend a lot of time doing similar similar um, kind of consultation as to what Matt does, where we don't charge. So a, a document comes in, we read through it, we draft a synopsis of it, we read it back to the client so that we make sure that their uh, understanding is the same as the, the, is represented properly in the legal structure and our interpretation of how we would administer it. So if all that's aligned everybody's on the same page and that there's no changes to be made unless the life circumstances, wishes, or goals of that grantor change. Um, but uh, we find it quite a bit that through that process, which is a no-fee process, we end up delivering sort of a summary of changes the grantor wants to make, which then gets taken to one, two, or three attorneys to have a an off-the-clock discussion about the changes they want to make to the document um, and, then, and then what it would cost to implement those changes. So we see that a lot. And then the last thing I would say is that I tend to see in our market here changes to documents accelerate as people age. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody who's you know in their 40s, 50s, 60s might create a document. It might not have any uh, big changes for quite a, quite a few years but then once they start approaching 70, 80, uh, the changes start to pick up. Um, I don't know if you've had a similar experience, Matt, or, or if that's just this market. But Well, I, th- I mean, I think um, my, my dad lives in your market, so I think some, some of that is a part of the demographics. But um, I, no, you're, that's definitely a big part of why documents need to get changed over time. Is, but I guess kind of more broadly, it's just whenever life circumstances change. Our, our goals change. Our relationships change. Our, the, the value of our assets goes up and or down. The composition of our assets changes. Um, you know, we just you know the laws change. So everything is a everything is a moving target. And if your estate plan is static while the rest of your life is dynamic, you know that's it's going to be pretty it's going to be pretty far away from where you want it to be when when the time is right. 
Peter, I think you are up, and then I think uh, Surfer Jim next. So I, I just have a I just have a quick question, um, and I think it'll I think I'll get a quick answer out of this. As as uh, you know, we live in this era. I'm calling this transitory era. Where we're moving from fiat to to something else, um, and. In this era, I think people become more sovereign, and you mentioned sovereignty in regards to trusts and, and this kind of thing. I'm wondering if if somebody lives in a jurisdiction and then um, renounces citizenship in that jurisdiction, does an irrevocable or irrevocable trust care at that point? Um, well, I'm going to give you... I wish I could tell you it was an easy answer, but it's the lawyer's answer. It depends on what, on what we're talking about. If you are, for example, if you're a U.S. person, we just were dealing with this yesterday, as a matter of fact. If you're a U.S. person and you renounce your citizenship, you have a massive exit tax, which is basically mark-to-market value of everything in your – everything that you own. Um, and you get to pay – I believe it's the maximum capital gains tax rate at that time. Um, so – and then if you don't file that – um, then you will be barred from re-entry to the United States forever. And so if you decide that you're going to you know, burn that flag, so to speak, or burn all the lifeboats, you better make sure that everybody you care about is with you on that, which means everybody that you ever plan to give an inheritance to, they expatriate with you. Because if then you die, and now you're a non-U.S. person who expatriated, and you provide an inheritance for someone who remained a U.S. person. Well, now you have no estate tax exemption, and the very first dollar that beneficiary receives will be taxed at 40, that's four zero percent. So now they get 60 cents on the dollar of whatever inheritance you leave behind. So, um, you know, as to the as to the sovereignty thing and Bitcoin flipping fiat, I mean, I, I think that there's an inevitability to that, but um, I don't think that we're wrong, but it almost never happens according to our desired timeline. So, um, you know, it's, I would really, I would really encourage anybody who is seriously considering expatriating to talk with an experienced, uh, with, to, to talk with an experienced attorney and you want to use an attorney, not just one of these advisors. Why? Because you want your conversation protected by attorney client confidentiality. Um, and so, and I'm not that guy, uh, but I, I know I know those people. But um, you want to talk to an attorney who helps you understand the full consequences of that decision. And I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying don't. I'm just saying make sure that you do do it with your eyes absolutely wide open. Server Jim. Hey, Al, uh, thanks, guys. Alex, 60 seconds. I know it's the end of the show. I just want to encourage everybody who's been listening here to take their advice very seriously. I, um, my family had two estates to settle, my mom and her parents. My mom, before her and her parents got older, realized that some estate planning needed to be done. She found a very good estate planning attorney. In New York, we were recommended to have not just a simple will, but revocable and irrevocable trust for everything to end up in. Also, a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy. So, check with your state laws and your local attorneys to see if they might matter. And we needed all of them. This is the point. My grandparents went into nursing homes. They could have taken their homes, but my mother took their house out of their name and put it into an irrevocable trust within three years of them going to a nursing home so they couldn't touch it. All of our estate, all of their estates were settled outside with 
with no help from the government. You don't want the state to come in and settle your estate for you and your family. So take these guys seriously. Thank you very much. That's all I needed to say. Thank, thanks, Server Jim. I mean, you're, you're right on. And, um, you know, the reality is the state, whatever state you live in, they're not actually going to take your property. I know this is not what Jim said, but they're not going to take that property, but they will administer it and manage it in a very public way. And New York is one of the worst states from a probate perspective. And remember, we talked about previously probate is the judicial process by which some dude in a robe says who gets your stuff and who gets to make those decisions. You can avoid that by using any type of trust if you go through the process of then transferring your assets to that trust you now privatize the entire process and private and, and privacy is one of the pillars of sovereignty so um you know i get preachy about that but i think this is probably a receptive crowd for that um you know much more we can say about different jurisdictions um about about much more complex estate planning but um i kind of feel to a certain degree alex that it's worth just harping on the basics uh, from time to time, because if any Bitcoiner worth more than a small stack of sats does not have some type of estate planning in place that is a sovereign designed private estate plan, you ain't sovereign. So uh, get that figured out. And, um, you know, anyway, that's that's just a big whole other side chain, but um, so to speak. But um, anyway, yeah. I'll kind of leave it there. I think this has been fast, fantastic. I'm a big fan of harping on the uh, the basics over and over and over again. Repetition's mother of all learning. It's how we learn, um, and we have new people in here all the time. I think it's great. So I just we're at the end of the show. I want to thank both of you uh, for being here and spending your time to teach people. Um, I know your time is extremely valuable, and I think this information is extremely valuable. And uh, so I just want to thank you guys for doing that. It's big props to you. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate. Uh, let's give you guys a couple of moments. Like if you don't mind keeping it brief, cause we are at the end of the show, we need to wrap. Do you want to spend maybe 30 seconds, a minute, um, talking about closing comments or anything you want to plug or just really anything you want to say, Paul? Um, I'll just, I'll just say there's, there's a few people in the audience. I have, I have helped out and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to talking to any one of you. Uh, my DMS are open. Um, I'm just having discussions with, with, trying to help people get some of these things in place, helping them locate trustees, attorneys that understand Bitcoin. And I'm, and I'm finding out from them, right? There, there's many of them live in jurisdictions where they're coming in contact with attorneys or trustees that are moving into the space. So it's a great opportunity for me to learn from you guys. And uh, hopefully I can spread some knowledge to you, make your life easier in, in navigating this process. So feel free to message me with questions and hopefully I can help. Awesome. Matt, go ahead. Yeah, um, I guess there is one thing I'd like to plug that's new since I was on the last uh, Twitter Spaces Cafe Bitcoin with you guys. Um, so in my bio, it, it mentions a company called Bespoke. Um, Bespoke is now officially a, res a registered investment advisory. So we now have a true multifamily office that uh, really focuses on Bitcoin affluent families. Um, we believe that we're the first truly in the world that has our combination of skill sets. Um, we do complex wealth strategy and estate strategy design um, with me and some other folks there. We uh, then send that work to 
law firms, including my own law firm sometimes, depends on what people want. And then uh, in addition to continuing to support those strategies, we now have full SEC registered um, advisory that does not, we do not focus on all these hedge funds that people lock up their, their assets in. We focus on, on liquidity of publicly traded assets. We focus on uh, Swiss custody, both for Bitcoin and for fiat, whether it's Swiss francs, U.S. dollars, public equities. Uh, so um, I would uh, love to be able to spend more time talking about that. There'd be much more to come. But uh, Bespoke Advisory is now fully SEC registered and, and up and off, uh, off to the races. Fantastic. All right. That is a wrap. Thanks again, guys, for being here. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news. Prefer to hang out for some of the smartest minds in the industry. We do talk about Bitcoin and we do it every day. Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. We roll for two hours live on Twitter Spaces. If you can't catch the live show, this is also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. You can throw myself or Swan a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of this show. My crew and Peter Sands for Life. Producer Jacob, I'm your host, Alex Stanzik, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more about Swan, shoot me DM. Happy to help you. Thanks again, Matt, Paul, all the speakers that come up here on the regular. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate you spending your personal time to teach people about this bright orange future. And this is what we call getting on the mission. If you don't know what that means, I encourage you to hang out. You'll figure it out. Love all you guys. Everybody have a great day today. Go out there and crush it.